Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. All right, listeners, we want you to try something. Are you ready? Close your eyes and visualize the ocean. A calm, rolling ocean. Either you are floating weightless, enjoying the ebb and flow of the current, or you are on the beach enjoying the view. The sound of the waves and wind lull you almost to sleep. Now, remember the last time you were sitting by a creek, river, or lake? And think about the sound of the flowing water against the rocks and how that made you feel. For most of you, the feeling we are looking for is relaxed or calm. The calming effect of being around or even thinking about the ocean or water in general actually may have a name. The blue mind, well, that's a, a phrase that I use to refer to the way we feel when we're near, in, on, or underwater. Not a, a new feeling by any means. This is quite an ancient idea. Meet Jay. My name is Jay Nichols. I am a marine biologist and a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences. Along with his career as a marine biologist, Jay has been a fervent lover of all things ocean and the effect it has on our state of mind. In his book, Blue Mind, Wallace explores this relationship between the human state of mind and being around water. But what exactly is Blue Mind? I think the best way to understand Blue Mind and answer that question is to first consider Red Mind, which is the phrase I use to describe how we mostly live most of the time, which is uh, we're distracted, there's a lot of incoming information, whether it's sound or visual information. We're, we're dealing with gravity, so even just sitting here in this room with you guys, it's relaxing, but it's stimulating. There's some harsh lights. We're processing each other's languages, and we're balancing ourselves in these chairs. Well, the thought that being in nature changes your mood is all good in theory. What is the actual science behind the blue mind? To find out, I visited Stanford's Center for Cognitive and Neurological Imaging. Hey, Nate. How's it going? Good, good. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Come on in. Thanks. No problem. Everyone, meet Nick. Hi, Nick. I'm Nick Save. I'm a neuroeconomist at Stanford, studying how people make decisions on the environment. I participated in a study Nick was conducting. Cool. Did you have to answer questions about the environment or something? Well, kind of. They also stuck me in this tube. So you said I just spent like, what, 45 minutes in, in that tube? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tube. It's a knocking it a tube. tube. <laughs> yeah. Now we're looking at my brain. Yeah. Okay. And you can scroll Ooh. through it if you just hold the... As part of Nick's study, I was stuffed into an MRI. While I took a survey based on images of nature, I had my brain scanned. Nick's research is officially called neuroeconomics. Neuroeconomics has really been focused on things like how people handle their money, uh, gambling problems, that sort of thing, and less so on environmental questions. But if you think about it, a lot of these financial decisions are readily applicable to how we deal with the environment and how we manage environmental resources. And a lot of the questions, a lot of the pressures on the environment come down to financial problems and people wanting to commodify uh, these things that we value so much. Taking this unique approach to environmental decision-making allows us to rethink how we look at nature. And how nature affects us. Bringing neuroeconomics into an environmental sphere, you're looking at things like, you know, how do we value these natural resources? How do we, you know, make decisions that have both short-term benefits and long-term trade-offs. How are we going to manage these things that 
have these intergenerational consequences. Nick is looking at what mechanisms in the brain we use as we decide to dam a waterway or decide to develop this area that a rare species lives in, or what's the price point for certain energy efficient technologies and how do we weigh all of these options? And currently, one of the best ways to look at how the brain is working is by being strapped in a tube. The way that we look at this is through it's called fMRI. It's You can think of it like time-lapse photography uh, of the brain's activity. You can really get into differences between individuals if, say, you know, they weigh the future differently or they're better at math or they have stronger pro-environmental attitudes and they really want to save the planet. What does that look like in the brain and what are the differences that you can see in that activation compared to somebody else. Once inside, my brain was scanned while being shown images of pristine nature or being given economic choices with environmental impacts. Like, would I pay for a green appliance that featured an Energy Star sticker? Or would I donate $28 to preserve a habitat of a cute wild cat or seal or a whale? So how does this all lead back to the blue mind? Nick's work, in concert with the efforts of other scientists, helps us explore the science behind the blue mind. There is a lot of literature to look through. First off is forest bathing. A study from Japan published in 2011 compared the effects of walking in a city to taking a walk in a forest. The strolls in both locations required the same amount of physical activity, but this study found that the forest environment led to more significant reductions in blood pressure and certain stress hormones. This forest bathing was found to even cause a reduction in systolic blood pressure of about 5% after four hours in the forest. Another study out of Michigan State University and the University of Canterbury in New Zealand found a link between health and the visibility of water. In that study, the researchers referred to it as blue space. According to researchers, this blue space was significantly associated with lower levels of psychological distress. Greg Bratman from, from Stanford did a study like this where he had people walking around kind of nature reserve and, you know, El Camino, which is a busy roadway, looking at the differences between those individuals and mood and cognition. Basically, for the study, people were taken out into nature and given some cognitive tasks. Those who were out in nature did way better on these tasks than those who had been in non-natural settings. The other interesting thing was that the main difference in their brains when they came back was there was lower activity in a part of the brain that's more active when you're um, ruminating. So that, that has to do with like negative emotional thoughts, right, that tend to be very, very repetitive. If you had been walking out in nature, you weren't as likely to dwell on the bad stuff and the rumination part of your brain sees much less activity. That was kind of a, a cool finding. and That was the main difference he noticed about, about being out in nature. A lot of the behavioral studies about nature are kind of predicated on this idea of what's called attention restoration therapy. So a little bit about where um, you've got all these diffuse demands on your attention. It's a different type of setting. We've got a limited amount of cognitive bandwidth that we kind of drain during the day in society. Um, and being out uh, in these environments allows us to, to recharge, essentially. Okay, now remember Redmine? Back to Jay. We're all carrying around a supercomputer in our pocket. We're overstimulated compared to 10 years ago. You know, the amount of information each of us is taking in on a daily basis is you know, almost the equivalent to what we used to take in on a yearly basis. So you're processing that. That's not free. 
that's expensive in terms of brain power and, and glucose. So we're working really hard just to be us, just to be live in this really tuned in, turned on, connected society. That's exhausting. Turns out there is a cognitive science theory around that too. There's this thing called bounded rationality theory, which is we only have, you know, so much cognitive overhead and it's very easily uh, overloaded. And so, you know, you get this chance to to recharge those batteries in nature, as we were talking about. Um, but also one of the interesting aspects is, um, you know, when we're looking at environmental decisions, we can really start addressing that concept of cognitive overhead and look at how that changes the kinds of green decisions we make. In other words, if we combine everything that we have talked about so far, having only so much bandwidth with the bounded rationality theory, and Greg Bratman's and others' studies actually tap into this idea of attention restoration theory. And the Japan and the Michigan Canterbury studies showing a positive health connection to being in a forest and even just looking at imagery of the ocean. All of this together paints an interesting picture. Folks are still studying how nature actively restores that processing ability and bandwidth, but scientifically, there's still a lot we don't know. Part of that is because doing brain scans in nature are a bit challenging, from attaching those sticky sensors to lugging a huge MRI into the field. And part of it is because of the history of the interplay between the soft and hard sciences. Back to Jay. As a scientist, previously, this topic was off limits. We weren't supposed to talk about emotions and how we felt. Uh, but now, because of you know, the breakthroughs of neuroscience, neuropsychology, uh, we can we can go there. And uh, the science of emotion is a real thing, you know, a really cool thing, actually. And so Blue Mind is that, is bringing that to, to the conversation about why we should protect, restore um, oceans and waterways of the world. Part of the value of all these studies for Jay, both as a scientist and an ocean advocate, is in how this all relates to getting people to care about and act as good stewards of the ocean. Personally, I, I hit a wall probably going on a decade ago just with the whole way the ocean crisis was being communicated and what I was seeing with my own eyes. It made me very sad. I was taking my kids to the beach to do beach cleanups, and then they, they finally told me they didn't want to go to the beach anymore because every time we went to the ocean, it was gross. It was... My little girl even said it was, it was unjust that she had to clean up other people's trash. The ocean was not a happy place for her because it was always bad news. And it was always trash cleanup. And I was like, wow, I think we're doing this on a, a global scale. I think we're bumming people out and failing our movement. Re-enter the idea of Blue Mind. I started thinking more about, okay, where is this going? How, how are we going to share this conversation within the ocean and lake and river communities. So Jay got the idea for a book. Turns out there is no book about your brain on water. And there are lots of books about your brain on music, mm -hmm. your brain on meditation, uh, your brain on happiness, tons, tons. But there wasn't a book about your brain on water. Through his marine biology work, Jay has had the opportunity to travel across the world. And everywhere he went, he would talk to people about the blue mind phenomenon. Everywhere I travel around the world, I hear stories uh, anecdotal as well as research that uh, bears that out. People who study the neuroscience of awe and wonder are finding the same thing. Awe improves our ability to be empathetic. And the, maybe the single greatest source of awe 
our major waterways and, and the ocean. So sunsets are nice. Sunsets over the ocean are super nice, super awesome uh, in the technical sense of the word. As luck would have it, Jay actually worked with Nick on his book. And they met relatively by chance. Jay was giving a talk at a, I think it was a social oceans class or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone mentioned it to me uh, that someone's talking about uh, neuroscience and the environment, which at that point I had been working on it maybe a year and a half or something, but I hadn't come across anyone even talking about <laughs> that kind of cross-section. Uh, and so I went to the talk and then uh, we had beers afterwards. Yeah. And yeah, that was... Maybe, maybe 2010 or 2011. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe like, let's just say six years ago. And uh, yeah, it's a little before the maybe, first blue mind. That, right. Uh, yeah. Summit, yeah. So over beers, a professional relationship developed. Since then, many natural science and conservation communities look to work like Nick's and use it to help inform them about our relationship with nature and how to help these groups move people to act. As the technology continues to advance and the scientific understanding of this complex relationship grows, Blue Mind might become a household concept or even a prescription for your health. Be sure to join us next time for an all-new Ocean Science Science Radio. Blue Mind I'm sitting there by the ocean. It's a tube.